Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 418. Man, that's a lot of episodes. <laughs> Creating Better Brood Habitat with Marcus Lashley, part due. And I am your co-host and the guy who now owns a street legal motorcycle. All right, congrats. I am your co-host and the guy who's starting to do the rain dance. Why's that? Been dry there? Man, it's been dry. We don't have any water for ducks right now. Oh, yeah. Duck water's hard to find. I thought you were just talking about for to water your fields yeah no they've gotten plenty of rain although nothing's growing so that's a little disappointing considering how much work we put into spreading thousands of pounds of seed (laughs) it'll happen yeah hopefully it's just something going on there i don't know but hopefully it picks up there but yeah we i mean we've got our old river system always has water it's low so i mean we'll have somewhere to hunt we just need 
our typical timber holes and our cornfield that we plant for roosting have no water. So yeah, and the the roost field is integral part of the killing of ducks. So, <laughs> so I'm, need... I'm going to go out on a limb and say at some point in time in the not too distant future, we're going to be praying that it will stop raining. Oh, yeah. You know, that's how it always is. But right now we need, if, if it would just give us one big blast, you know, to fill up that field would be all right. But I think some folks in Florida would be glad to give you some rain. Yeah, I'd, I'd take it. Just ship it up here. Put it in buckets, you know. But <laughs> that's where we are. So that's one part of it we can't control. And if we don't get any, we'll figure it out that's yeah. kind of the fun of hunting that's you know everybody wants perfect weather all the time but it wouldn't be fun if it was the same weather every day or year true 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 so would yep. you actually got you get your harley no so the <laughs> law changed in alabama well the law's been changed in alabama but the county that i live in on the ballot on tuesday had a proposed amendment to allow low-speed vehicles, and hmm. I'm not so sure my motorcycle's low-speed, but... <laughs> the video I saw, that it was not low-speed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was some high-speed yelping. Yeah, they're now allowed on the streets. Of course, they've got to have mirrors and headlights, taillights, and yeah. you know, some other some other things. Of course, no seatbelt on a motorcycle. No, but, not, you not know, really I, necessary. I've been joking around saying, yeah, I'm just going to drive this thing everywhere, park that gas-eating Toyota Tundra in the driveway and <laughs> ride my motorcycle all over Shelby County, Alabama. There you go. There you go. So, yeah. Hey, but good stuff, man. We're, you know, I'm, I'll tell you, I, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say this, but, man, I'm glad the election's over. Yeah, that's, that is always a good thing, and historically you know now we can get past all the mudslinging and hopefully for a couple of months until we start yeah. talking about 2024 yeah uh, yeah i'm kind of over it to be honest I, I don't deal in it as much anymore i mean I, I look at it more from a business perspective than a personal perspective now um, how you... it affects things so yeah. yep no it doubt kind of no changed doubt. for me in that regard but it is over so hopefully hopefully we get a few months of of relief on just getting along <laughs> there's gonna be no getting along but <laughs> you know we'll we'll it'll still be more of the same but hopefully it won't be as heated i should say yeah well as it has been in 110 days i'll be thinking about nothing but turkeys because that's when we're cranking it up so i don't care who's running what i'm just ready to go turkey on I'm with you, man. We're a buck 33, 21 hours, 32 minutes, and 59 seconds away from the opener in Alabama, and I'm ready to rock. Yeah, I'm starting to get that. You know, I'm excited about duck season. Always am. Ready to get the hound out and let him fetch some birds. And But I'm starting to get that itch. You know, I, I've started looking at maps a little bit. You know, I've... Mm -hmm. Walked out to my turkey building, hit on the slate call for a little three, four minute session the other day. It's it's starting to <laughs> creep in. The diaphragm call is now in the truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's starting to get there because I've had two weeks to get over fall turkey season being over, and now I'm ready to go again. You know. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Feels yeah. good to have a slate call in your hand, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, there's something therapeutic about that. You it know, really is. Just just going out there and squawking on that thing. 
Yeah, I'm sure for some people it's a box call and yeah. you know for some it's a scratch box but just something about having that call in your hand even if it's not turkey season it just feels good. Yeah, I don't know what it is, you know. I have an old lunch box, it's not worth anything, but for whatever reason that one's kind of, you know, just feels good to pick up a lunch box and and hit it, you know. Yeah. Or yeah. some of these other box calls I have from older call makers and stuff, kind of custom ones. Those are those are always fun to just pick up, play on them a little bit. Just feels yeah. good. No doubt. Well, you know, another thing that feels good is getting on a tractor or getting out the drip torch. Oh, yeah. Getting the chainsaw in hand, maybe the machete and a squirt bottle full of Roundup. Just It just feels good. And yeah, so no doubt. We've got part two of the seminar that Marcus Lashley did at the Alabama NWTF Field Day back in August. We've got that for today's show, and I hope that you guys enjoyed last week. You know, I apologize for getting last week's show out so late. We had some technical difficulties on our end in getting the show put together and posted for you guys, and so it was a little bit late coming out, but appreciate your patience with that. I don't think we're going to have any issues with this week. I believe you'll get it on time, and we should just be ready to rock and roll from there on out, and so... What do you say? You want to jump in and listen to the rest of Marcus Lashley? Let's do it, man. I hope y'all enjoy part two, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Julia, I think I'm probably running way over on <laughs> What's this plant? Yeah, I know you've seen that seed head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a sweater. I'm just going to roll with it if it's not bothering y'all. <laughs> I'm going to be swimming here in a few minutes. Yeah, I, I drank about six bottles of water before I got up here because I knew it was coming. Uh, yeah, so this is one, I see it uh, probably in South Georgia where they have uh, what they call brood patches in quail country. And uh, I see it really commonly become a problem. They're disking, and usually in that really productive long growing season, they're, they're disking those every year in the fall or, or winter. And when they get a big time weed problem, it's ryegrass. And uh, if you've ever planted ryegrass, you got it, unless you've tried to get rid of it. And if you haven't planted it, you almost, still, almost certainly still have it if you haven't tried to get rid of it. What's so, the difference in ryegrass? So what cereal rye is a cereal grain. It's very similar uh, in many ways to wheat or oats. And uh, that one is high preference deer forage. It's dying back, you know, very similar. It's a little bit uh, later. And uh, there are some applications for that plant, you know, in replacing wheat or oats. Ryegrass is one of those filler things that you'll get, you'll see in seed mixes really often. And it literally, you could throw it on the roof and it's gonna grow there. So like some of these mixes that use rye grain or? Cereal rye is fine. Yeah, yeah, cereal rye is fine. It may not be the best option for you in this part of the world. Yeah, but rye grass, uh, it's low deer preference but it grows excellent everywhere you put it. You know, under basically anybody that plants a food plot can do just about anything and they're gonna get it to grow. And it, you know, it's really aggressive. 
plant and once you have it it stays there in fact I'll tell you a little story I uh, have fought this battle with folks in my family for years and years it started when I started working with Craig and we were doing trials where we were comparing all these different things in forage production and and uh, deer selection and everything and ryegrass consistently ranked last like across the board ryegrass was the worst thing and then once you had it you know it was a real big problem and so I took that home because my family they all plant ryegrass they plant ryegrass patches in the fall and uh, it was interesting because my dad had already disked or failed to get it prepped for when I came down to help plant and uh, we, we had a carpet of grass and it was about two weeks after it it got a little rain and it was all volunteer ryegrass and that's what he had bought to plant and uh, so we went on and planted the seed you know and it's like we had a carpet of ryegrass already once you planted it you know it's a uh, it's pretty hardy so uh, yeah it, it's one of those plants that it can it can become a problem and I it's really easy right now to identify because it's all brown and that seed head's really easy to recognize it's standing brown right now in your your food plots or whatever <clears throat> you can go ahead alright let's switch gears a little bit I've probably been going about three hours is what it feels like uh, so uh, let's talk about some yeah we'll go well we go the food will arrive between 11 and 11 15. We just need to set out that side. For okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll go a little faster through this. Uh, so, how many of you are managing or have property with pine plantation on it? All right. How many have hardwood? Okay. Uh, I kind of got a feeling that we're going to have a mix of that. So, uh, do you have pines that look like that? What? How do they look different? Sweet gum. Yeah, so I see this pretty commonly and uh, probably more commonly now I see sweet gum encroachment that, you know, that's in the mid-story. So go ahead. How many of you have pines that look like that? Okay. So now we're getting more sunlight in and this was is being burned frequently. It's really good uh, structure for deer and fawning. Uh, probably have some nesting in there. Need another disturbance, right? It was in this year, it's ready to be burned again, right? So uh, you can go ahead. What about your hardwoods? They look like that? Is that beautiful to you? Is that what you want it to look like? Some of it, not all of it. <laughs> You're right. But you want some of it, but not all of it. But it's very consistent that all of it looks like that. We very often take a more of a custodial approach where we just don't worry about it. Let it do what it's going to do. And, unless you're going to harvest. You know, uh, people just don't do anything. All right, we can go ahead. So, uh, my, a lot of my master's work was focused on fo uh, hardwood forests like that. What can we do? And especially if you're in a situation where the timber on it isn't very valuable, uh, you know, and you're, you're not necessarily able or may not want to go in with a, a timber harvest. So, uh, we 
looked at several things. One of them was a, an improvement cut. And basically what we did, we went into it trying to get the, the canopy cover down, uh, allow some sunlight in by killing unwanted hardwoods. And we did that with uh, girdle and squirt primarily. Uh, and the idea was we were trying to improve it simultaneously for deer and turkey, uh, you know, to see how things were affected. Go ahead. So uh, you can start to see some of that response right there. Uh, we were, you know, a lot of times we were trying to get it down at least 30% uh, open canopy for sunlight to get in. That's kind of the, the minimum before you start getting the response, especially if you add fire in. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, especially if we were doing a shelter wood cut or something where, you know, we're going in harvesting timber, we might even go down to, to 40 or 50 percent because the trees are going to fill in the canopy. I also did a lot of work while I was there and we've continued that on. I have a long-term project ongoing now with it uh, where we were trying to influence mass production at the same time. And it was really interesting what, what I did and a whole bunch of other students did with Craig. Would, we followed hundreds of white oak trees for years and tried to figure out can we can we isolate the really good of individuals and it turns out if you uh, if you pay attention like you have a stand that you're thinking about doing something like this in and you pay attention on an individual basis to whether or not the oak is producing acorns over a three-year period like go look in the canopy did it produce acorns and a lot of you if you're really familiar with your property you already know those individuals if it over, you know, you just decide I'm going to do it, look at them for three years. Did they produce acorns in one of those three years? If it did, it's one you keep. And that was about 85% accurate in determining the good mass producers that you want to promote. And what we did is took that information and then released those good ones by killing or, or harvesting other individuals. There were oaks, you know, it's a it's really interesting how it works. It's all over ecology in terms of genetics, but there, there were a lot of oaks that we couldn't, we never even saw them over a 10 year period produce an acorn. Like not one. You know, we couldn't prove it ever produced any. That, that tree's just wasted, right? It's wasting resources. So a lot of people are afraid to, to do anything with oak if you happen to be in a situation where you have big oaks. Most people won't want to touch any of them. And you still can uh, do some stuff like this in that and get benefit. And uh, when, when we ran some of the simulations with that data in the initial study, we could cut down about half of the oaks and still have more mast produced in two years. So we would have half as many individual oaks, but because we selectively retained the ones that were good mass producers, we actually ended up with more mast in only two years because we released those individuals. Uh, the, the other thing is we got a whole bunch of other benefits from that with the, the understory response uh, that followed that, especially when we added fire in. Go ahead. So here's uh, showing you some of those responses. You go, keep on going. Uh, when, you know, early in that, uh, it was pretty good place for turkeys for turkey production. 
So notice one thing we have here, we were doing this on south facing slopes. So on this same place right here, on the north facing slope, we didn't do anything, right? It's a more of a, a cool, moister community because of the aspect and we aren't applying that, those treatments on that side of it. Now you may not have that benefit based on you know, your, your own limitations with your farm, but if you do, that's a good way to mix up what you're doing. You're using the land to tell you how to create that mosaic and there are, you know, there, there are good reasons for turkeys to use that other slope at, at times for different things too. So go ahead. Question. Yeah. You can apply it on that, yeah. But I, in that particular case, we had a bunch of ridges that, on that study area, and now it's like 10 years into it. Every south-facing slope looks like that, and every north-facing slope. Uh, I mean, in fact, we we burn it and just let the fire go, and it goes out on its own on the moisture side. Uh, but we're, you know, using the the more aggressive forest and improvement or timber harvesting on the south facing slope and using fire there and you know more of a, a custodial approach on the other side. Yeah. So do you all do the, the timber stand improvement on the north slide and just not burn it? Some? You can. Some? There are there there are places where we have done that too. And how's that? But the problem with it is if you don't have fire involved in it, it's not going to be very good very long. Please. Yeah, so uh, the, the benefit of using that south facing slope is you can use fire and keep it going and as long as you have enough sunlight getting in and you're using fire frequently enough, you can maintain some pretty good habitat. You know, and at different stages during that process it might be good for brooding or nesting. You know, uh, on the north, well, you can see any studies where you do do the temperature improvement and then do burn it because you still can burn on the north. Mm -hmm. Um, is the ground cover a lot worse than the No, no uh, we're, you, you can produce good uh, cover on that side. Okay. But that, that's an example of how you could use your particular circumstance to create diversity. You don't want it all to look like one thing. Unless you have 40 acres and, and you can create a, a situation that is unlike you're, pro you're providing something that none of the rest of the landscape is providing. That's, that's a different you know, circumstance. Uh, but if you, if you have enough property that you can mix it up and provide different habitat components and different places on it, then that is desirable to do. But it, you know, it has to be placed in the landscape context that you're in and your own situation. So well the yeah well just put it this way what the drier side you want you, you that that's the side you're picking to use the more aggressive disturbance which tend to be south facing and you know the southwest will be pretty dry uh, go ahead Go ahead. I think this one's got multiple things. I'll just go ahead and get them all up there. So again, uh, you know, we, we can use dormant season fire. Uh, I've worked on this in a whole bunch of places and 
Everybody wants to know how frequent. One good answer to that is to vary it. Vary the timing. You know, variability can, can be your friend if you, uh, if you have that luxury. And it usually is somewhere in the two to seven year range, depending on the productivity of your soil and how long the growing season is. We're trying to stay in that range. Maybe a little bit longer if you're trying to provide nesting and a little bit on the shorter end if you're trying to consistently uh, uh, rear broods in it. Uh, the late growing season fire is still an effective choice. How many of you have heard that you don't burn in your upland hardwoods? I hear that all the time and actually the funding that funded my my master's research came specifically because of that. It was to address that issue and whether or not fire had a place in it. Uh, go ahead. So uh, here I'm going to show you some, some stuff. Uh, you can move through these a little quicker. Uh, in these stands we were using it to pretty effectively provide some uh, some good brood rearing. Notice this was burned six times in a 16 year period. Go ahead. Uh, here's another fire. You can see these are early growing season. Go ahead. Uh, that in that case is not quite ready. You know it's not it's a little bit behind. Uh, the, the April fire compared to that dormant season we consistently don't see any shift in composition. You're not gaining from that timing but uh, particularly in a little bit northern you know, north of here, uh, you know, the community may not quite be high enough to support really good brooding. Now that may not be as big of an issue here. I, I've talked to some of you that talked about that time frame of burning and uh, you already have, you know, uh, forbs that are, that are up and that's fine. Go ahead. So you can see here where uh, we've gone in, just use a small chainsaw to do a ring and uh, used a mix of garlon and mazapir, 50% uh, garlon 3A, 40% uh, water, and then you add in the 10% mazapir, or uh, uh, arsenal AC. Yeah. Uh, and the reason we put those together is the, the arsenal is really effective on a wide range of hardwoods, but if you have leguminous species in particular, or ELM, E-L-M, uh, the, the mazapir doesn't do as well on that as garlon. So if you put them together, it's just a broader spectrum of control and if you're trying to go through and kill a bunch of trees, you don't want to have to constantly try to switch between. <clears throat> so go ahead. So, go back. so you're just barely breaking the bark around yeah, the tree. Yeah, basically we're, we're cutting into the cambium layer and you're trying to get the herbicide into the cambium. And you're doing it directly, like if you sprayed these hardwood stands, you're just a broadcast spray with the mazapir, you're going to kill all the trees. You don't want to do that, right? We're trying to kill individuals and you know with that method you can target that individual without having that problem. Here's showing you some other uh, benefits that you get. Yeah. In doing your your burns in your hardwood, I've always heard it's bad or very dangerous to do a growing season burn and stand the hardwood. We're going to talk about that in just a second. 
there, there's one issue if you have a closed canopy hardwood system you're not even going to be able to burn during most of the growing season it's not going to carry a fire uh, the, the moist conditions under that canopy and shade uh, is just not even an option. You know, it's really once you open up the stand and get a lot of the sunlight penetration in and, and fuels where you can even open that, that window up. Uh, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. So here, just showing you the control just means it's closed canopy. We didn't do anything that first picture. Uh, and then the fruit production, if you just apply fire, and get anything out of it. Uh, okay. All right. I'll, I'll just finish this this uh, slide real quick. So reducing the canopy down below, you know, where you have at least 30% sunlight penetration, get a big boost, and then putting fire with that has an augmenting effect, right? There, you know, when you put them together, you get more than you would get from either alone. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> well, I hope it. Hopefully, it's uh, captivating. Anyway. <laughs> I think I got a pretty good understanding of where you want to get to. The problem is, I'm here. Yeah. There's so many distance spraying, so many options, so many different. I know, and and every property is a little. Yeah. When every property is a little different. We're, we're definitely too much for Dino. Every food plot has a Dino. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll spray and we'll have the Dino come up there. Yeah. I love Crimson. Yeah. I've had a lot of Crimson. Yeah. And I didn't talk about it, but I've had a few plots where we've had Crimson going without planting it for over a decade now. Oh, yeah. You can. We, we, we don't even plant it anymore. We just maintain it. Yeah. Good for you. Now, one thing about how late in the fall, how early in the fall, because I don't think you want to this too early and have a seed sprout and then frost you. For, for what? For this fall, this Frost kill what? The, the beneficial weeds? Well, it, it actually isn't that big of a deal. The, the main thing is the the uh, those for, those desirable forbs are hard seeded for, so their seeds are hard and dormant. They're not gonna come up. Well, not all of them will. Some might, and that's fine. And deer will eat them, and, and turkeys will be in there, and that's fine. And you'll still get a response in the spring. Okay. bring anything so I hope you don't mind I'm not playing with oh wow well, okay. <laughs> I didn't even know my age I'm, I'm just a, <laughs> I was just assuming y'all trying to get me out of here to <laughs> I kind of got roped into this yeah. as you can tell yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad I came I'm learning yeah. stuff too now I know why well. it doesn't always matter yeah <laughs> Take that off. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't bother me, you know. Yeah. I appreciate you letting me do that. Yeah. I can do this thing now. One thing I've got to tell you about the quail. Just like turn this off.
but I mean there's so many issues like that we really need to to get at. I, I want to talk to you about that. I, you know, I want to see what is there anything that we can do, you know, on the platform and yeah. to help you yeah. be able to, to even put a study like that together. Yeah. What is what are we talking about total dollar wise? And mm -hmm. All right, so we're going fast. So yeah. Marcus, let's talk about that some more. Then we'll everybody grab a plate. And then we'll let Dr. Chamberlain do his presentation. Isn't that interesting? Everybody calls me Marcus and I'm Dr. Chamberlain. <laughs> Every time. I guess I'm just not respected. <laughs> I, I call you Marcus and him Mike. So yeah. Well, normally, I, 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 I tell people to call me Marcus, but it's just interesting that uh, it's consistent. In the phone. If not, I'm pretty sure I got your number for now. But yeah, I can get it to you. Plug it in here. I don't necessarily want to record that, but <laughs> so it, it won't. It won't. I'm not going to take all of the presentation and use it. I'm just going to pull bits and pieces yeah. out of everybody's presentation and just say, hey, dumbass, this is what you missed. Mm -hmm. Part of what you missed, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we kind of got in a dialogue there and it slowed me down from what my plan was. But I think we normally get more out of it for that. So. Uh, what, what's your number? So 662-418-6224. Okay. Yep. Yeah, if you send me a text for your name, I'll put it in there. So, am I understanding correctly? We're going to eat and you're going to finish presenting? I think that's the plan. Yeah. I've got an area probably about a half to three quarters of my mm -hmm. It's got away from me on Bush Hogan. So I've got the poplars and I've got the switch. Mm -hmm. Stuff here up to about right there and then all the way down. Mm -hmm. I, what I did was try cold for your remedy. I called the company, told them I was going to do a hack and backpack spray. They said 25%. I went 25% with it. I just hit it with a hatchet and I'm not getting a kill. So for, it, from which chemical? Uh, remedy. Remedy. It's what? Here. Okay. Uh, so the, the backpack spray and yeah, the, I mean the, what I normally recommend is to use the, the arsenal with it. Uh, well, I wouldn't use it with it. I'd just okay. use it separate. Just do a hack and spray. With yeah, and, it, and as long as it's not uh, legumes like like red bud and. and uh, uh, what's another one? Honey locust. I do have or honey locust. What's the best for it? So that'd be the garland. So that mix garland. I said earlier, okay. the the 50% garland 3A, mm -hmm. and then uh, that's a stout mixture of 50%. Yeah, so 50% of that, and then uh, put in water, and yeah. then put in the garland 10%. Arsenal. Huh? 10%. Oh yeah, yeah, arsenal. Yeah, garland and arsenal. But put them in that order, otherwise you're gonna make jelly. Gotcha. Gotcha. So gotcha. if you put the two chemicals together without the water in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to win with tricolor beer. Oh, yes. It, it'll kill it. 
Agreed. But I, I'm not. I'm not like I said, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah, if you're not happy with that, that's what I would do. Okay. Yeah. I do appreciate that. The other thing is the timing. When you know, if you're doing that in the spring, well, if it's in the spring, you're not going to do as well as you would in the summer. I try to do it in July and August. Yeah. Yeah. That's better. Yeah. Yeah. And it should. You know, it may take two months for them to die. Yeah. Do you want me to go ahead or? All right, we're going to go ahead and continue. I see a lot of folks, I guess I've taken your appetite, maybe you're not hungry or something. Uh, yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll try to get through this and, and uh, maybe I'll give you enough time to eat and I'll give you the floor. <laughs> yeah. So again, we see this really commonly uh, where you know you add a practice like fire and you expect it to change the whole world and that, that you know in this closed canopy hardwood system you, in, on most metrics you don't get any response. Right? So the canopy reduction releasing light, that is a light limited system. When it's a full canopy you're turning sunlight into oak tree or whatever the hardwoods are. They're catching the sunlight and that is limiting your response at the level that you're trying to to make turkeys in. So that's the number one thing is getting that light in there. That response will be ephemeral if you don't have fire in it too. That's one thing, but also adding fire into it boosts the response to that sunlight. You've now taken a situation where light was limiting, you have released a light so that it is no longer limiting, and adding fire into that can then have a bigger, you know, a bigger response. Obviously, in the fields, light is not a limiting factor there, and that's not a concern. Go ahead. If we look at the the cover and think about this from a, a brooding or nesting standpoint, uh, we see the same process. And pretty much, you know, if you want to talk about deer forage or forb response or whatever, they, you know, you'll see a similar pattern where the response to fire is being limited by light light causes a big effect itself and then you add that in and you you get a, a big response go ahead so here's a, a case study this is a 500 acre track which i had uh, the privilege of doing a lot of work on when i was in mississippi and i uh, had some students uh, they were uh, working on a variety of things but i want to show you some of the turkey data one thing i want you to notice is all these green stars all over the place. What do y'all think those are? Nope, those are feeders. So all those are feeders and most of them are associated with food plots. Uh, there's none in this property. We don't have any sort of supplementation of food. So I'd like to preface, preface that with, with that. Uh, so you can go to the next one. A lot of that place looks like looked like that when we started. Right? They were really aggressive with brush control and closed canopy uh, when we got to it and uh, there wasn't that much in there. The places where there had not been any herbicide, uh, you know, we had sweet gum encroachment, but most of it looked kind of like that. Go ahead. And our intention on that property was to do what we've been talking about here, to try to mix up our management strategies across that property. Again, it was 500 acres. It's in a terrible shape, right? It's a long linear property. Turkey can walk across it in 10 minutes, 
right? It's not ideal, but uh, it's the reality for a lot of people. And uh, we wanted, you know, places that had different kinds of structure that were going to accomplish different things in terms of their, you know, pro their uh, habitat components being addressed. So uh, you can go to the next one. You can see that was just showing you. Then uh, this is something I do pretty commonly. It's a little bit different of an approach than uh, you know some of the other turkey research uh, has taken, and I think it's complementary in a lot of ways. So I, I use cameras a lot, and we saturated the landscape with cameras in this study, gridded across evenly spaced. I think it worked out to about one every two or three acres. So we've got a lot of cameras on it, right? Uh, you can go to the next one. That is the habitat use on the property by turkeys. So if you took this heat map off of there and put deer on it, it looks almost identical. If you take it off and, and uh, put on quail, it, it looks almost identical again. We actually have a couple broods on that property even though I don't know where they came from. There's nowhere in the landscape aside from that aside from uh, the little patches on this right-of-way right here, this power line, I don't even know where a quail would live in that place and somehow they showed up and we have a couple of broods that have stayed there for, uh, they've been there over a decade now. Uh, so notice what has happened right here. We had some places where we used an herbicide application trying to really hammer the sweet gum and, and elm. And uh, we also thinned to different basal areas. So we have uh, somewhere between 40 and 60 basal area in the stands that all have color right here. So you can see this little crescent. That's where we did the thinning and all of them had fire. So you can kind of see how that lays out. Hopefully the gray had herbicide and fire, the dark color right there, just fire but all of them had some level of thinning, which was either 60 or 40 basal area at the target to initially. And you can see that red means hot. That means that's where they are really using intensively. And we did, uh, this is published, we published some data showing that they were tracking particular vegetation characteristics uh, in that you know, in the those stands that was responding to that intensive pine management. Notice again, we a lot of the cold spots are right near feeders and food plots that the neighbors have, and they're still not using it much in that area. That that isn't even, you know, that's not driving their habitat selection. Uh, so it's really interesting look at that. We took a you know, a situation where most of the landscape looked like that initial picture that I showed you and we created something that was limiting on the landscape which was primarily uh, nesting and brooding. And when we did that it became an absolute magnet for turkeys, especially in, internal to the property. Which is hard to do on a property that, that narrow, right? That's on, this little pinch point right here is only a couple hundred yards. So, uh, you know, even at a smaller scale, you can have a pretty appreciable effect on turkeys. What time frame is that? So, uh, go ahead, back to it. Uh, the, in terms of, like, how long were we sampling? So we, we had them running year-round. I think that particular data that I was showing you was during turkey season. Uh, but it doesn't really change that much. I mean, they were using it really heavily in those 
heavily managed stands most of the year. That doesn't mean they aren't using those other places for a reason at some point in the year. But uh, it was really intensive. So in other words, blue doesn't mean they never use it. That just relative to those other areas, we were not detecting turkeys very often. Right? Now, uh, imagine having to go through tens of thousands of thousands of thousands of pictures to work out all that. The poor graduate students. Don Chance was the grad student who led that that particular work and uh, man he I don't know if he uses trail cameras anymore after that study because <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, that's a it's a pretty hefty thing uh, another thing we've done a similar thing in hardwoods and uh, w one of the most compelling versions of this that I've ever seen and some of you may have heard me talk about it I've talked about it on podcasts and stuff before we burned in hardwoods and uh, this was the road going in when I was walking to it the first time after fire. It was like two weeks after it. And I was walking in and that was the road and man it was just covered up with turkey tracks going to the stand. And it was one acre. We burned one acre in the hardwoods. Nowhere else in the landscape burned. And uh, we had it replicated across several sites. And uh, the turkey use, we went from very little turkey use on average to extremely high even in that one acre patch right we still had an appreciable effect I mean if you did an acre in a circle and then you set in the middle of that you can almost shoot the whole acre right yeah. pretty good pretty good setup uh, one thing that that it was just overwhelming to me in that system is when you go in there there were uh, foods laying around exposed everywhere a lot of acorns a lot of bugs laying around everywhere. Uh, there were snails and stuff. So you can see a snail. This is a shield bug. A uh, bunch of acorns. We did another study, a different student during that same work, where we showed even the preference for acorns in that uh, system. It was increased by being exposed to fire. So uh, wildlife wanted to eat burnt stuff, which makes sense, right? We cook our food. We like that. So makes it more tasty. And so uh, I kind of wanted to show you that example kind of lead you into this idea of scale because I see it as a real barrier often with the use of fire. You kind of feel like you got to burn a hundred acres before you even make a difference. And uh, so I've done some work on this. Uh, you can go ahead. I think this is just showing some. Uh, we, we literally in these hardwood stands were using a leaf blower to create our fire breaks. So we were able to, you know, it's pretty uh, easy to do in places that are hard to get to with equipment. And, uh, you know, then lighting, you can go ahead. And just lighting off of that makes a really good fire break. As long as you have that discontinuity in fuel, you know, uh, you can use it as a fire break. So <clears throat> here's a, an example of a study that we did with that. And I was initially... Uh, I keep get, kept getting how much do I need to burn, what do the burn block size need to be. Uh, there's been really good work showing that you know we're probably burning at a scale. Uh, Mike has a great study uh, about the scale of fire and when turkeys start stop using the internal part. And I, I got to thinking about that and was like, well, how small can we go before we don't get, we don't see a behavioral response? And uh, this was measured with deer, but it makes a really strong point. I started getting a little bit, you know, it was more of a, I was almost joking about it. 
it got to such a small scale. I was like, I'm going to do it where I can shoot that deer with a bow. You can see I'm not very effective at long ranges. So we did a 30 yard radius, which works out to about uh, two tenths of an acre. And even at that scale, you can see we also did a thing where we had these paired sites where we had a camera on a tree and we monitored how much while the deer, whatever we're using that space. I thought he was enjoying, he got excited about what I was saying. Yeah. You were inside the drip line right then, buddy. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to eat a biscuit now. So, in this study, just to give you a little bit of insight on what we were doing, we had pairs of trees that we just determined we're going to do these two, they ought to be pretty similar. We would look at them at, you know, for over a course of a few months and see how much use are we getting from our, our deer in this case. And we would pick the, the one that was getting less use and burn that one to see could we actually shift that. And that's what you're seeing right here. The, the, this data is from the tree that didn't get burned. This is before we, the burn date. And then this is after the burn date when we didn't burn it. So you can see a shift in the use where it, it goes to much less. And then the paired uh, tree where we burned a 30 yard radius went from before being substantially less to substantially more use. And it worked out to about 14 times as many bow shots, I think is what we calculated when we were thinking about how much day use by deer during bow season. Uh, it was during the first month of bow season in Mississippi. But the, really the point of that was to show, you know, we very commonly plant a one acre food plot and everybody expects that to work and be beneficial, right? Well, we can burn at small scales too if you need to do that or you have the opportunity and it can even enhance things quite a bit if you mix up the, the size of it. But most people, when you start getting down to, to this scale, you get a lot more comfortable with using fire and you can practice, right? You can get experience using it, start understanding how the fuels are behaving, you know. Uh, and I've noticed, and it has been pretty overwhelming, people saw this work and then they you know, now I still get emails saying, hey, we tried that and now we're scaling up. And now they're burning 50 acre patches or whatever. So I'm not showing you this to suggest that you need to go out and burn 30 acre patches everywhere. But even when you're burning at really small scales, you can still have an appreciable effect on animals. In this case, a desirable one because we're getting a bunch of deer in the bow range. And same thing's true for turkeys. You know, if you if you only have 10 acres or you don't feel comfortable burning your 30 acre patch, there's no reason you can't burn a couple acres here and there, especially if that's going to lead you down the path of getting more comfortable and you know using fire more. And then you think about those those early successional fields. If you're using fire in that, that often will be two or three acres, right? So even at that small scale, you can still have a, a, a big impact and it can be a really good gateway into uh, using fire more often. This, so fall burn. this, this data was a, from a fall burn. We burned in early September and the data after right there was the first month, October. Uh, for for uh, October, 
both season in Mississippi. All right, so we've talked a lot about using fire, and here's data. This is data that we pulled from a federal database showing when people actually lit fire over the thir past 30 years, 36 years, I think. And uh, the dark gray right here is showing you when, what the time of the year was. So you can see this huge peak right here, right? Most of you are probably using fire at that time, uh, which is, you know, across the south. That's what, that's what we do. Uh, I, just so that I could see how it compared, I also took that same database and looked at fires that were actually caused by lightning strike, and that is the white bars. And uh, there, this has driven several research projects that I've been working on with timing, trying to see is there any reason why you would shift timing based on the biology of the animals that we're trying to manage. But uh, notice we have a whole bunch of this spring, early spring burning. Lightning lights fire a lot during the summer. And then over here in the fall, we don't have much fire on the landscape. Right? So you can go ahead. Here's some, uh, some really interesting data that stemmed from one of those studies where we looked at the timing of fire and how it was affecting the animals. And uh, this is actually turkey data. Uh, so basically you're looking in this pine, uh, Loblaw pine plantations and it was replicated on 10 sites. So this is what happens when you don't burn, their use of it. And then if you burn during March, you get this really big bump in use in April, May, and June. And then if you shift the fire and apply it in June, you get a lot of use later. And what we've noticed on a whole bunch of studies with several species now, uh, the use is kind of a sliding scale and you get a really intensive use. We call it, we've been calling it the magnet effect. You get this really intensive use for about a couple, you know, two months or so after the fire. And there's a lot of advantages of that. You can take advantage of it, like if you're burning in March, you know, having a lot of turkey use during the turkey season is a good thing, right? So uh, they also often are using that to raise broods in. Uh, so that's the point of that is you can change the timing and you are having a different effect on the way animals are using that space and there are good reasons for that based on their biology and what's, how things are responding. You can go ahead. So uh, I wanted to, to look through the data that we have and see, okay, well, why, why are we burning at that time? Like, what is actually driving that pattern? And why aren't people burning at any other time, even though, you know, I thought, well, it, maybe there just aren't any burn days, and that's why we're not burning at other times. So I got this study, which actually took several decades of data on uh, the conditions that were suitable in, in terms of carrying a fire for the fuels and also you could get a permit from the agency to burn on that day and looked at how many day, burn days do you get in every month and this is across the south again it's, uh, 12 states of data I think and this is the pattern that came out right here we get a lot of good burn days in fact we get about almost 50 percent between January and June I think it, it's uh, right around 50%. And then from then on, we get about the other 50%, right? So you just looked at the data. We have substantially less fire on the ground in 50% of the days that we could be burning. 
right? Does everybody see that? So why do you think that is? Anybody in here a college football fan? <laughs> that, that's definitely one. Most people burn on the weekend. Yep, there's another reason. What else? They're hunting. How many of you burn when it's hunting season? Any hunting season? I don't care which one. Okay, we got one. One of you. How many people burn? I'm not going to count all of you. It's a bunch of you. A lot of you are burning. Nobody's burning during a hunting season. How much of the year is that? A lot of it, right? A lot of the burn days occur during that. What about during nesting? Anybody burning during nesting? Yeah, well, March. I hear I get a lot of heat about that one. Yeah, March. People ask me about that. Uh, we, we had a podcast. Mike and I did. I invited him on the podcast to talk specifically about that because it's such a stigma associated with it. So go listen to that if you want to hear some details about it. Uh, so if you work it out, that's about 90 days in the burn window. You can go to the next one. Uh, one, the primary thing for turkey folks that I hear most often is we're not going to burn during nesting. Well, here's a map. I think Mike's working on one. I don't know if it's where it's at, and, but uh, there's an updated version of this coming. But this is the old version, kind of giving you an idea of when turkeys are nesting. Uh, or, yeah, nesting phenology. Uh, go to the next one. So if we take that and think about that here, okay, that's those days. Now we're down to about 70 days of our 90. Right? So let's go ahead. If you don't burn during hunting season, well, we've whittled it down a lot now. On average, over the past 30, 30 or 40 years, you would have had 29, if you have those two barriers, uh, you'd be whittled down to a third of the burn days. Right? So let's go ahead. If you own hardwoods, they're closed canopy. Remember we talked about not being able to carry a fire literally during the summer. Well, that's May through August. We don't have that window anymore if it's hardwoods. That's down to 20 days. Go ahead. If you have a job where you can't do it during the week and you're not going to you know, pay for it from somebody else, uh, we've now whittled it down to seven days in a year. Let's go ahead. If you don't want to do that on Super Bowl Sunday, then we're, we're down to a very few days, right? On average, where you've got a good burn day and good conditions to burn in if you're not going to do if you're not going to burn for any of those reasons. So you can see why, I mean, it, when we start thinking about it that way, we have whittled down the opportunity to burn substantially. Now, depending on where you're at and, and what kind of ground cover is, you probably, in some cases, have more flexibility on burn days, particularly if you have native ground cover and uh, like wire grass is a big component of it, or in pine, uh, sometimes the needle cast will carry it on days, but uh, this is integrating the, the fuel conditions with the conditions that uh, the agency will, will give out permits. And that's what it worked out to, which I was pretty surprised about. Right, We're expecting a lot of burning on the landscape to occur in a really limited thing and then think about, okay, we have consultants that you can pay to do that. Well, they're trying to accomplish a lot of burning with a lot of landowners, right? And uh, if that's all occurring during one time of the year, you have bottlenecks. 
It's hard, you know, I, I hear it all the time from people asking for, you know, help or, or an opportunity to pay somebody to do it. And then I hear those people that are, you know, that are those consultants say, we've got 10 times as many requests as we have opportunities. And what they end up doing is burning the bigger acreages, right? Which makes sense from an efficiency standpoint. And if you're a smaller landowner, you miss out a lot if you're not doing it yourself and particularly if you have all these limitations. So you can go ahead. Another real barrier that, that uh, we've worked on a lot is burning in hardwoods and particularly people are afraid they're going to kill all their trees. So I did a big literature review on that to try to figure out you know, what, what does that look like financially. So uh, first of all, we're talking about using low intensity fire like this. You're not going to harm many trees doing that, first of all. But we can go ahead. Uh, when you, you know, th these are those low intensity fires. You can see that that was uh, right at the beginning of green up. This tree right here, basically not influenced at all by that fire, right? With that low intensity firing technique, meandering the fire through there, low, low flame height, we don't have that much influence. You can even see here, the, the tree causes a fire shadow behind it because it takes a, a while for the fire to converge again, right? When you have problems is when this is the case, which if you're using some of those techniques like forest and improvement, you're probably gonna end up with some trees laying down next, or limbs or something, that coarse woody debris, if that catches fire, that will damage the hardwood. So, uh, in a couple of different places we've gone in and uh, taken a couple people with chainsaws and try to remove it from prized trees. It's a good way to deal with it. I've even had people that go in and rake around a few. Maybe you've got an oak that produces a billion acorns every year and all everything in the woods wants to eat under it. Well, take a little time to go and protect that tree if you, if you want to to be more comfortable. So let's get to the, the data. There, there are a handful of really good studies on this, and this one is, it was particularly good. And uh, they had 139 stands of hardwoods all across the, the southern Appalachians and the central hardwoods region. And uh, there are 10 to 50 acres, which is pretty comparable to what most people were trying to burn. They had somewhere between one and six fires. And uh, on average, across all the study sites, they were getting about 3% loss on the butt log. That uh, was in a fully stocked stand that also worked out based on the current the timber markets at the time, to about which was only a couple years ago, uh, to about $84 an acre. That's what you'd lose if you burned repeatedly over a 10-year period before you harvested the timber. Uh, there are several other studies that show similar things. This was also biased high in terms of the damage you could expect because two, uh, two of the studies or, or uh, two of the study areas that had a bunch of the stands, they were trying to kill hardwoods with fire. They were trying to restore it into a savanna, oak savanna, with fire and they were intentionally hitting it trying to damage trees. So that, that's kind of a worst case scenario, what you'd expect uh, was this $84 an acre. So you can go to the next one. Uh, we worked out some math looking at a, a 10 year management plan. And uh, if you work out the cost 
of that, taking the losses in the worst case scenario in terms of what you would expect to gain, and I did this with deer because it's harder to do with turkeys, but a lot of you are managing for deer too. That works out to about four cents per pound of protein that you gain from it. So we're using that as a reason not to burn there based on cost often. And if you compare that to planting a food plot, which everybody's really gung-ho about to produce protein, we're talking about far more efficient even, talk, even taking the losses if, in the worst case scenario. If you compare that to supplemental feeding, which is widely practiced, it, they're not even comparable now, right? In terms of how much you're spending per pound of protein you're gaining from the practice. Go ahead. And that's on a 10-year management plan. So just to work that out for you, uh, that's about 27 times taking the losses on the hardwoods that you would gain if you're trying, or if you, your fire got away and it got intense and you damaged some trees or whatever, you're still 27 times more efficient than using supplemental feeding to do the same thing. Which is pretty incredible to me. So uh, the bottom line to that, you know, think about your hardwood management. You can use fire in that case effectively to pro produce some high quality uh, turkey habitat. And uh, it's often neglected. Uh, I know a lot of you already know about it, but we have a network of podcasts where we talk about a lot of this stuff. And uh, please subscribe, share it, you know, all those things. Uh, on Fire University, uh, I talk about turkeys all the time. You'll even see it kind of built into the theme there. I love talking turkeys, and uh, I really see it as a, an important tool for turkey management, and a lot of people are passionate about making more turkeys. So uh, you combine all those things, and, and that's where that came from. Mike has been a guest on it several times. We, we've had a lot of turkey-related content on it. But uh, anybody have any questions before I give? Did, did the rotation of the hardwoods, once you start burning them, do you use the same yearly type numbers as you do on pine? In terms of how fast? Like brood habitat, you know, because that, that really depends on, you know, your, your conditions with sunlight and uh, your productivity of the site and the length of the growing season. Typically, it's up in the mid-south that the rotation can be a little bit longer than it would be in pine plantations in the southern coastal plain, for instance. Okay. But uh, that's that range of, you know, that range of time, yeah. you know, we can vary it in there based on what you're seeing respond and what you're trying to achieve with it. If, if you have really aggressive uh, hardwoods because you've got a product, you know, high productivity site with, uh, you know, a long growing season, you know, that needs to be more, more on the frequent side. You get down into you know some of the productive regions of Florida, and uh, you know in quail country, if they're not burning two, every two years, it just about gets away from you. By the third year, the hardwoods are too big to, to effectively control anymore, and uh, that, you know that can certainly be an issue. And then you know you kind of start going up into more northern reaches, and I mean you're not going to have fuel accumulate that fast. So it really does depend on that and the main thing about this is so that you can see what you're trying to achieve and you know self-identify what is working to achieve your goals and it you know it's hard for me to give site specific recommendations because it can vary.
depending on what you're trying to achieve and what's limiting in your landscape. Anything else? Did anybody eat anything? <laughs> Mike, you're the only one? Everybody else lost their appetite, I guess. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it, everybody. You know, having that chainsaw in hand or that machete and that squirt bottle full of glyphosate, it's, it, it I don't know. I just enjoy that. We talked about that not long ago, and I just have gotten, as I've gotten older, just enjoy the land management, period, you know. Yeah. So something something about being on the tractor, you know, I, I'm sure it's just got a lot to do with the fact that when you're on a tractor, you still have to be very present, you know. Yeah. You you hit a hole, you run over something that gives you a flat tire, so you've always got to be present and alert and it gets my mind off of yep. everything else in the world by being on the tractor. And so I enjoy it. It's a good escape or a good release for me. And then nothing wrong with improving the, improving a piece of property. So Yeah, I, I really enjoy and have learned a ton from, I feel like there's been a pretty nice shift recently in the past couple of years for turkey management of, natural plants forbs grasses types of things because the ground will produce plenty of food for wild turkeys you know and we don't have to rely specifically on going out there in february and frost seeding a little wheat plot you know that really doesn't do much for your turkeys yeah <laughs> but producing perennial plants that are putting on big seed heads and providing cover for bolts and things like that just makes sense to me. So I really enjoy these type conversations of how to manage your property on a large scale and not just, Hey, you know, go put in three one acre food plots and draw them to your property for the two months of hunting season, you know? Yeah. So I, I do think there's been a shift in that thinking. Cause that's when I was Younger, I absolutely. I thought, oh, we need more food plots. We need more food plots. That helps them. You know, it's like you think it because you, you see more in the spring, so you think you're helping them, and you are somewhat. Yeah. But not as much as you could with the same effort of pulp producing areas and right. food plots. And, you know, you could do a lot less food plots if you're doing burns and things like that. So exactly. It's. It's an interesting concept because when we met with Grant Woods a couple months ago, he made a great point. He's like, turkeys, you know, in this climate in the southeast, they're not going to have a problem finding food. They have a very versatile, mm -hmm. you know, palate for what all they can eat. And so, so food availability is typically not your limiting factor. Like that's almost never the limiting factor in the southeast. Pulp producing is the limiting factor. The pulps yeah. aren't, aren't making it. So uh, I think this series with... Lashley, this two-part series, very important. It absolutely is. And, you know, so many things that he talks about we can do even on leased lands where we can't yeah, which is burn. Huge. Yeah, you know, so you've got 40 food plots on your hunting club property. Well, you know, do you really need 40 food plots? Why don't you leave five and let them go fallow? for two, three, four years until they almost get to the point to where they're unusable. 
and then go in and reclaim them. But in the meantime, let two or three others scattered around the property go fallow. So you've always got that brood habitat present. And, you know, there there are so many takeaways from this two-part series that we can all use. And just like he said at the very beginning of his seminar that we played for you last week, we have a drastic shortage of brood habitat, not just in the southeast, but all over the country. So anything that we can do to make better brood habitat and get it closer to what we believe is typical nesting habitat, anything that we can do to help that, we're going to be helping out turkeys. So Yeah, yeah. that's a solid point because if a poult's got to walk half a mile to get to brood habitat from the nesting habitat, that's a long way when you're the size of like a bumblebee. <laughs> the chances of them making it are not good None. at all. None. They need to be able to be right in it as soon as they're hatched out of that egg. And I I don't really want to spoil this a whole lot. I'm just going to mention it very quickly because we are going to play Mike Chamberlain's seminar from the Alabama NWTF Field Day. But he mentioned something in his seminar that I just want to throw out now. He said they are learning. It, it really just kind of blows me away. Here we are, 22. 22 about to go into 2023 and we're still learning about these birds Mm -hmm. he said they are learning that the first two weeks of a poult's life they have no ability to regulate their body temperature and Mm -hmm. you say well you know they don't necessarily need to mom's there mom can keep them warm when it gets cold no it's the opposite when we're having these late hatches because the nests are getting destroyed and it's pushing back, you know, hens are re-nesting and re-nesting and re-nesting, and we have these late hatches. If we don't have good brood habitat, these poults literally are cooking out in these fields with the direct sunlight. Wow. And anything we can do to improve the brood habitat and get more of it on the ground, we're going to help help these poults out and have better hatches and better recruitment and there's nothing wrong with that so i just wanted to throw that out there because chamberlain's seminar really ties in well with lashley's seminar they piggyback very well together and so you know i just wanted to throw that out there we're going to play chamberlain's in the not too distant future but that was mind-blowing to me because all i ever heard all these years is poults when they get wet and cold they die Mm. that makes sense they'd be getting hot and dying right but we don't think about them cooking huh that is a very interesting thought and our summers have been pretty brutally hot here the past couple years yeah so hmm. that's definitely interesting that'll be that'll be a intriguing thing to hear from him as well because this is my first time hearing this stuff too since i wasn't there (laughs) yep you guys missed out got to be sure to come to that next year and you know as soon as i know about it i will throw it out on the show and we'll promote it a little bit and try to get more opportunities for you guys to come to it and you know learn a little bit i i was just excited that the Alabama NWTF chapter, state chapter, does this field day and gives opportunities for us to all learn how we can improve our property to grow more turkeys. So it was, it was a cool event. But yeah, tell them um, to call the Tennessee chapter to <laughs> do one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, 
I want to throw the favor of the week out there. All right, cool. So most of you guys heard at the end of Marcus Lashley's seminar that we, turkey hunters, can make donations to their research that they're doing, that Marcus Lashley and, and his group are doing. And the way to do that simply is to go, if you're not already following him on social, he's Dr. Disturbance on Insta, and I can't remember. Anyway, you should be able to find him on Facebook. Just go in and, and search for Dr. Marcus Lashley, L-A-S-H-L-E-Y, and message him and ask him how you can make a donation for research purposes to help their research that they're doing. Even if it's 10 bucks, 20 bucks, if a thousand of you listening, and Cameron and I know there's really not a thousand of you, there's just that one guy, but if he'll do it $10 donation a thousand times, or a 20 buck donation a thousand times, that'll be a lot of money. Word on the street is our listener is doing really well financially. (laughs) (laughs) He's invested all of his money with Cameron, and so he's doing very well. But seriously, hit up Dr. Lashley, find out how you can make donations and do that. Really, 10, 20 bucks will go a long way. And it's not just going to be your 10 or $20. It's going to be mine and Cameron's and a lot of different people's 10 or 20 bucks. And it is going to go a long way to help out. And we're going to continue to learn great things from what they're doing. So if you guys would do that, that's the favor of the week. And the other benefit of doing that is you'll end up following him on social. And learning. (laughs) And learning some more. So yeah, he's he's one of my really. favorite accounts I follow right now, to be honest. Yeah, yep, good stuff. So what do you think? You want to wrap it up for the week? Let's wrap it up. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.